Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. There's a lot that could impress you about the all new Honda Prologue EV. True, it's got class leading passenger space and clean, thoughtful design and intuitive technology. But what really sets the Prologue apart from the competition is that it's more than an EV. It's a Honda. Honda, the power of dreams. Visit honda.com slash prologue to learn more. If you're still deciding on your spring break getaway, Amtrak's got just the ticket. You can visit cities from D.C. and Philly to New York and Boston, all while enjoying more sustainable travel. Amtrak produces up to 83% less carbon emissions than traveling by car or plane. And did we mention the extra legroom and comfy seats? Book early and save at Amtrak.com. Click or tap the banner. Emissions comparisons vary depending on route and locomotive type. Restrictions may apply. Achtung, achtung. Welcome to We Have Ways USA with uh, me, Al Murray, James Holland and John McManus. And this is a subject I think we'll, we at some point will come back to later in the year due to televisual treatment of what we're going to talk about. But, <laughs> <laughs> but that's one way of putting it. But what, what did we want to talk about today, John? I thought we'd just talk about the 8th Air Force bomber crew experience just as a whole. I have been... So incredibly fascinated by this since I was a kid, I guess. I mean, it's it's how can you not be? It's such a one off in a way, you know, in terms of how the bombing missions worked and all that, how, you know, how vulnerable the bombers would be going forward in the future. Yeah. Um, and how vulnerable they were then, too, for that matter. But they were still yeah. effective enough. Yeah. They could launch these raids. But just the it's always struck me the the kind of priority, the societal priority in both Britain and the United States, but in in saying Britain, I'm including Canada too in this equation. Yeah. Um, And Australia to some extent of creating these modern air forces, which absorb so much in the way of resources uh, to build these aircraft, to maintain them, to ship people, to, to try and attract quality manpower to fly these missions. And certainly from the American side, it's a lot of really young guys who are attracted to the glamour of flying as they perceive it. I think sometimes this is easy for us to overlook all these years later, especially in the 21st century when, let's be honest, flying pretty much sucks for most of us most of the time. Um, (laughs) For that generation, though, flying was just the ultimate aircraft aviation. If you were at, a say, a county fair or you were at a ball game or something and a plane flew over in the 1920s, Everybody stopped and looked, you know, it was and that's where the future was, the glamour, the the, and the idea that that human beings could could conquer the air to some extent uh, and that now this could be weaponized and and help you win the war without the trench grind of World War One. All so appealing. So many accounts of airmen is that they get bitten by the bug at a county show, don't they, or whatever. They're at a fair and a plane comes over and they think, wow, that's what I want to do. So many. 
I mean, so many key American aviation figures, you know, the, all the Apollo 11 people, they talked like that about, about flying. It's a thing they saw in their boyhood. That's what I want to do. And I mean, you're, you're absolutely right, John. I mean, we complain about the food we get on an aircraft now. That's, that's our relationship with flying or leg room. You know, th- those, are the, those are the things that um, <laughs> the way we engage with flying rather than, holy moly, I'm flying higher than anyone ever has before. In a faster plane, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I'm controlling it, you know, and I have freedom now. Also, I think the other thing that that I think was incredibly exciting is, of course, that aviation began with with the Americans, uh, you know, with Mm -hmm. the Wright brothers. There is a kind of sort of pride of ownership in a way, I think, which which everyone else is doing flying as well. But, But there's a kind of sort of, you know... We were there first. And also, America in the first half of the 20th century, right up to kind of 1941, stands for modernity on on a different planet to every other nation in the world. You know, there's refrigerators, there's there's Coca-Cola, there's um, soda bars, aren't there, in in kind of, you know, in groceries and and automation and and, and all that kind of stuff. You know, it and there's Hollywood. Oh yeah, of course. Absolutely. And in 1930, of course, you've got you've got Hell's Angels, which is mm-hmm. the, the the famous or infamous film, whichever way you want to look at it, by by Howard Hughes, where he gets all these old, you know, first world war races and gets them to fly. And, and you know, by today's standards that 1930 film still stands up. It's an incredible piece of cinematography yeah. for for 1930. Yep. Yeah. You know, it really is extraordinary. And of course, you've suddenly got this perfect storm for kind of young Americans. You've got we're the best country in the world. You know, we're the most modern in the world. We've got Hollywood more than anyone, you know, we we've got the film industry that beats all other film industries. We've got flying and modernity, and, and here we've got this amazing movie. You know, everyone suddenly knows about it. Why wouldn't you want a piece of that? Yeah. And, of course, you are also growing up in reading Biggles and all this kind of stuff, and, you know, you're seeing these barnstormers at these country fairs. Maybe you got a ride, you know, in the case of a lot maybe of Maybe you got a ride, yeah. I mean, it's amazing. I mean, I've interviewed so many um, American pilots and air crew, and nearly all of them started off, I would say, 90% of the people that I've talked to would say, well, I was at this country yep. fair or this, you know, the, 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 the plane came to town and it landed in a field at the edge of the town and we all went out to see it. Yeah. And, you know, my dad saved up a dime, you know, two two cents to get me on exactly. this thing or whatever. And I remember Art Roscoe, this this American guy who, who actually lived in Hollywood, and he just used to hang out and, you know, clean the planes mm. and, you know, earn money so that he could get flying lessons, you know, when he was 15 and all this, and all this kind of stuff. And, and, and of course that's where it all comes from, you know, and, and if you're young and you're, you're clever and you're, you've got a bit of money, or even no. if you haven't, you're just young and, and got an imagination and you want to be part of this exciting new adventure, flying it is where it's at, right? Cause that's the most modern. It's a new frontier. I mean, that's the other thing. It's going to revolutionize warfare. You're going to fight it a completely different way. And remember, too, this is a generation that grew up in the shadow of World War One, the horror of yeah. the trenches and everything that yeah. meant. So that I want to be getting in a beautiful machine to, you know, take it to heaven and back and shooting down some Jerry. Exactly. Be an ace. Which leads me to the question, John, what had the Americans done aerially in the First World War? Because, for instance, Patton was in tanks in the First World War. So one of the great American tank generals or renowned American tank generals 
Wales. You know, there he is. He's at, he's getting his hands on the things. He, he's sort of as he's experimenting with mobile warfare in Mexico as well. He's sort of drunk deep from the philosophy he's then going to try and enact 20, 30 years later. What's the air establishment in the military side of things? What, what routes are being drawn on that that, that culminate in US eight? Yeah, AKF? so it's um, you know, I mean, you got the you got the famous flying circus, which is you know the, the sort of most prominent part of the American air side. Uh, it's really fighter driven in in World War One, at least the U.S. participation, and it's an amalgamation with the French and with the British. I, I would argue you don't really have an independent American air service quite as much because the war doesn't last quite that long. Uh, but it, yeah, I mean, I think there's a sense by a whole generation of young airmen that this is the future. Uh, Hap Arnold, of course, is, is an early pioneer aviator, and I think he's going to be as important a figure yep. as anybody. Um, you know, even Tui Spots. Yeah, Tui Spots, even Louis Brereton. Uh, you know, I mean, I do think you see this, uh, you know, and there, it makes a deep impression on them. Uh, what they would argue is how uh, aviation had influenced um, ground warfare. In a way, but but really, as you get to the post-war period, is when you start to see this argument that um, wars can be fought in one in the air through bombing, through through creating that new kind of military space of operations in the air. And Billy Mitchell obviously is the the person most associated yeah, with yeah, this, yeah. and and becomes quite a zealot on some levels, but he's also a prophet. In some respects, too, he I think he's one of the first to foresee how deadly planes can be to ships. Um, you know, how how control of the air can mean control of the war to some extent. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that all of this sort of evolves from the, this sort of little nest egg of the, the fighter pilot experience of World War One, which is interesting, but I think also not that impactful in terms of going forward because you're going to have all so many different kinds of aircraft that these guys are going to fly. It's revolutionary. But you probably would have been steeped on on, on the stories of, of Eddie Rickenbacker uh, and maybe the, you know, the, the sadness of uh, Quentin Roosevelt getting killed and, you know, these, these sort of people who stood out among this sort of mass anonymity and death in the trenches, that there was more gentility somehow. And Billy Mitchell, of course, is a, yeah, is a first right, world fighter. Exactly. Player, so that obviously that shapes his perspective. But I think he takes it beyond what it would have been his own experience in World War One, which really does tend to be fighter centered. Uh, Billy Mitchell really, in the end, is going to be much more of a bomber guy. In fact, you know, in the in the interwar period, they called in, in the U.S. aviation side, they were calling fighters pursuits, pursuit planes. That's right. Which is yeah weird in retrospect to think of that, but hence the P forty seven, P fifty one. That's yeah, what the P exactly. When, of course, really, these are fighter planes. And this is what, what really strikes me. So many of these guys joined up uh, for the what they perceived was going to be the glamour of it. The glamour of being a fighter pilot, being an ace. The glamour of being a bomber crewman or whatever to fight the war that way. And what they find in, in the reality of aerial combat is quite different. Um, they find that it is every bit as horrifying, terrifying, sometimes every bit as deadly as ground combat. Yep. Um, and uh, that there's yep. a whole Absolutely. new series of horrors that they are going to have to encounter. Uh, and I think we really do see this play out in the Eighth Air Force experience uh, because that's obviously yep. the, the heaviest casualty theater and the one that is prioritized the most. Well, and there's the question. I mean, in terms of the horrors you experience, the horror you can deliver as well. What's the crew of a B-17? Is it eight men? It's typically 10, usually. It was 10 men. Yep. So, so a rifle squad with rifles, the destructive power that that can deliver 
compared to a B-17. You're, you're, oh, that's the whole point of well, it. Well, I know that that's is the whole point, point of it, yeah. but the per, your personal relationship in terms of, as a combatant, the, the change, you know, you're bo- and you're bombing civilians most likely and all that sort of thing. It, it's a step change and a moral, a moral question and, you know, Definitely. one that people still, that obviously still really tangle with re- with regards to bombing of cities in the, in the Second World War. As a person, your relationship, combatant, relationship with combat changes because you could, you know, if you deliver your load of bombs in the right place, you could kill hundreds of people in a way that 10 riflemen, can't but the, but there is this messianic group of people who oh, yeah. who end up being the head of the United States Army Air Force yeah. in 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 the Second World War and who are absolutely leading the march with strategic air power, whether it be Ira Aker, whether it be Tui Spots, whether it be App Arnold, of course, uh, um, uh, Doolittle, you know, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, Brereton and so on. Um, these guys are absolutely, and particularly Lee Spotsaker and, and, and Arnold, are absolutely wedded to this idea of the Big bomber time, and, yeah. the, and the power of the bomber, and then the, and that this can save save lives on the ground, and this can you know do, knock out an enemy at source because you can destroy his industrial ca- capability and all the rest of it. And, and they're not entirely wrong, but they're they're obviously not completely no. right either. And one of the things is 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 that how we have to do it is we have to do this accurately. And the only way to do it accurately is to do it by day and of course they're doing this over the United States you know and when you're two spots and you're doing a, a cross United States non-stop flight you're barely seeing a cloud because you're doing it in summer because that's the time to get your record and it's hot and lovely and you're, you're doing this fantastic trip where you're you know you're flying over the Appalachians then you're flying over the Midwest then suddenly oh there's Grand Canyon and then there's California and the Sierra Nevada all is great and of course you're not thinking hmm what about the weather in Europe you know, know. what about happens when it's winter you know what the happens clouds. when it, you know it's a northern temperate climate with cloud even in summer etc cetera, etc cetera. and so you know they have thought about this of course I'm being harsh because you know that's out of, out of this comes a northern bomb site and all the rest of it. But 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 what they're thinking is you know convoys work for ships. You know you put them in. You have you know and and what you do is you have this convoy of ships and they're all protecting one another. Then you have this screen of defense all around it. Well, our screen is going to be the guns. So um, that that means we're going to have a sacrifice on how much bomb load we can take but we can absolutely you know riddle these things so you have 10 man crew on a on a b17 13.50 millimeter uh that's a lot of um, firepower 0.50 inch inch, sorry 0.50 inch half an inch caliber bullet that's a that's a big slug you know that's a huge amount and if you if you're talking about a formation you know of these operating in say you know 75 ships in one in one formation and an overall mass of 400 300 is which is what you're talking about in kind of you know mid 1943 um that's a hell of a lot of bullets that's a hell of a lot of guns uh, and you're thinking how how possibly can a can a messersmith get through that well of course as as it turns out they can but 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 that's where that's coming from so they're, they're going with these great ideals and 
it is then the crews who then have to kind of enact this. And of course, I think there is also this danger of assuming because we've seen movies, because we've seen Memphis Bell, or because you've seen footage or whatever, that you assume that the Eighth Air Force, again, a bit like the US Armed Forces, emerges kind of fully formed. No, it's constantly <laughs> there's a kind of straight line. And of course, it isn't at all. It's pretty small. And when they start in August 1942, there's a little kind of milk run to France, um, and that all goes fine, and it all seems tickety-boo. But then suddenly there's this huge change of emphasis which is to the to the mediterranean and north africa and nearly all the all the crews which are earmarked for um for for for, for the eighth air force operating out of east england go over to the mediterranean and it's not until the summer of 1943 a whole year later that you've got enough in your force that you can put up 200 300 in one go and it's only at that point do they extend themselves without fighter escort, famously, uh, Schweinfurt. to Schweinfurt yeah, in the middle of right. August 1943. And they get absolutely decimated. You know, I think 60 ships are knocked down. It's like 19% of the attacking force are destroyed. I think something like 120... 60 out of 291. Yeah. Right. And I think 120... 30 in total are gone or written off or suffer major damage and what, what have you. I mean, it's an absolute catastrophe. Well, which leads to a question. How do the people that have proposed this way of doing things hang on to, you know, you could say, how on earth do they then hang on to their jobs? That's a really because, good question. Well, because, because they're, the only, they're the only people there and they've gone down this road and there could be no turning back. So you have to adapt the existing plan rather than go, well, you know, go, okay, here's a blank sheet of paper. Let's start again. The problem is they're overselling a great product. Um, it, the product is great, <laughs> but it's not going to it's not going to solve everything. I mean, that, that's where they go wrong. Yeah. This idea that they're like like any sort of what I call zealots, they just sometimes they start with a pretty good idea, but they take it way too far. So it's yeah. right to say these formation tactics can be very effective. That's a hell of a lot of firepower. Plus you've got a tighter bombing pattern as you're working together there. Yes. Um, It's right to say that air power is a game changer, but it's wrong to say that it changes everything and that the nature of war is going to be totally different and that it can do the job on its own. And so, well, I'll just say part of the oversell is they're saying, and and you'll just see the results uh, yield themselves pretty immediately. And actually, this is one of these things where the the aspirations are 18 months, easily 18 months behind their ability to realize them. I mean, you know, you can see this, you can see this convoy air defense formation thing working. If say you had an onboard radar that could detect where the, Messerschmitts are coming from, but you don't. So you're relying on eyeball yeah. and people coming out. You know, if you know that if you could tell on a radar that they're coming out of the sun, everything gets easier. But you can't. That doesn't exist. That the technological solutions don't actually exist quite to deliver what. And you're when pitching. they do, the enemy adjusts yeah. too with their own technology, just well, like the well, the war well, sea. well, of course, but, because but, nothing's static. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, but for 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 but for the air crews. This is a really juddering roller coaster of a ride. And, and timing is absolutely everything to your experiences. So if you're arriving in 1942, chances are you're going to be okay because, you know, you've given, you're given 25 missions or whatever. I don't think that kicks in quite at that stage, but, but, you know, you've got a limited run a little bit later, but, you know, you know, you're going to have a tour of duty. It's not going to be forever. And actually over the Mediterranean, you're not getting, you are getting shot down, but, but, 
yeah, nothing like the levels that you would if over over Northwest Europe, because of course the Germans can't defend the Mediterranean right. to the same extent. They haven't got enough flat guns. They haven't got anything like the number of fighters um, defending the you know Sicily or North Africa as they have in Germany itself, for example, on forward airfields in the West. So, so. That experience, and obviously the the greatest danger to a bomber crew is a, is an enemy fighter plane, not flak. But but everything is intensified over Northwest Europe in a way that it just isn't in the Mediterranean. So say you're doing your run in, you know, you go fly over. You're one of the originals on the Eighth Air Force. You get to England in nineteen August nineteen forty two. Do a few more runs. It all seems pretty easy. And then you kind of you know you shrug of a shoulder. You're suddenly relocated to Bone in you know Algeria or whatever. Yeah. And and you, you know it's it's all a bit harsh. You're suddenly you're intense. But you know what the heck? It's okay. And you survive. But then if you're suddenly part of the kind of newly reconfigured, rebuilt up Eighth Air Force, which is operating in the summer of nineteen forty three, fresh with a new directive, point blank. Which has just gone into gone into happening in the beginning of June 1943. Okay, boys, we're here now. You know, Mediterranean that's that, but we've now we're now sufficiently in the war that we've got enough bombers that we can do Mediterranean and we can do Eighth Air Force. This is the main effort because the main front is going to be opened in 1944 across Channel. We've got a job to do. We've got to grind down the Germans, so that's going to work. You know, this couldn't be more important. Okay, over to you now, and. Destroying the Luftwaffe is a key thing, but the problem is, of course, is the Luftwaffe is building its factories are are deep inside the Reich, and that's not within fighter escort exactly. distance. Hence, Schweinfurt, yep. where the ball bearings are made, which are crucial for, for aircraft production. So that's why they're going there. That's why they're going to Regensburg. You know, but it's not between between the catastrophe of Schweinfurt. The next time they're ready, they've got enough strength to try it again deep in the Reich. Is October. Yeah. It's like two months later. And then they get nailed again. Same mission. And they get hammered again. Another 19% or 20% of the, of the crew. It's, a, it's an absolute disaster. So, so in, if, you're, if you're a crew at that point, 25 missions, it's impossible. It is, exactly. Statistically. Statistically, it is not going to happen if you are there at that point. And, of course, the, the, the rub is if you're there later, let's say by mid-1944, now they're going to start to prorate the missions you're going to have to fly more missions because the survivability rates are going up. Hence, you know, the, the catch right. 22 thing and all that. <laughs> but yeah. even so, but even yeah. so, but even so, you know, I mean, it, it, you have a chance. Yeah, you're better off in 1944 you than are. you do in 1940. The second half of 1943, if you fall into that category, that's the worst time. Man, you, you, it, it, uh, that's the problem because it's dark and it's miserable and it's not like flying oh, over Texas horrible. or New Mexico. Uh, and, and it's freezing and cold. And fear. You know, this is, the, this is a, something I wanted to read to you guys. This is a uh, navigator who was in the 379th bomb group at Kimbolton. So this guy's talking about fear. And as I said, he's in the 379th, which saw a heck of a lot of fighting, flew out of Kimbolton. It says, fear was part of the furniture in every hut, in every pub, in every parlor bedroom and bath it did not claw at one's guts when the fear was light and transient it drove some of us to the palliative of sex when it was more troubling it provoked a throbbing headache in the back of the neck or hives or flatulence and that's why he said that like you could smell fear because it had that smell of sweat of flatulence of whatever and then there's another guy you know who was talking about fear and he talked about how and i think this is so common especially in the eighth air force how he put on this front like he was the hot pilot he wore the 50 mission crush cap he had the 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 sunglasses he had the swagger and all that but beneath it he was absolutely terrified he would lie in his bunk at night wondering how he could even continue to do this 
And then when it came to the next day and showing his face before everybody else, especially his crew, he put on this front again. And I, I really think a lot of people in the eighth air force could relate to that. Uh, that's well, and indeed bomber command. Oh yeah. More so in bomber command. I think. Well, that's basically what guy Gibson is going through. Yeah. I mean, every single day. And I think, you know, one of the things that makes Gibson so remarkable is that he does it, you know, he keeps going despite being absolutely terrified. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's yeah. Just- yeah, and he's a microcosm too because there's many thousands of others who are doing the same thing. These are smart guys, obviously, as we've documented. So they know yeah. the odds. They can figure all this out. They've seen what can happen. And in the case of the 8th Air Force, I mean, I think the Americans are kind of lucky, really, that they can have a tour of duty at all. Um, you know, the guy you're flying against doesn't have a tour of duty. He flies until he can't fly anymore. And, you know, I think Bomber Command tends toward that a little bit more because, you know, it's been in the war longer and it doesn't have the luxury of drawing in as much manpower or whatever. But so the Americans are lucky, but still that works on your mind. Yeah, there's a, there's an amazing record by a guy called James Good Brown. Oh, yeah, the chaplain. Um, who, who the is diary. A, he's the chaplain. He's a chaplain at the Free Engineer First at Ridgewell. Yeah. Um, oh, it's awesome. And it's amazing, actually, because the, the remains of um, our friend Chalky Peters and, and Paul, uh, who's a local guy who lives around there, and, and they've written a book about, about Ridgewell. But, but Paul took me around Ridgewell when I was doing my, my work on Big Week, and it was amazing because the old cinema – um, was, was was I a know. bar yep. of stuff, you know it, yeah. and it's and it's covered in nettles and yep. brambles and whatever, and you pick your way through, and it's all kind of dusty, and there's old kind of farm machinery in there now, and then at the far end of this, what used to be the cinema, is a door, and it leads into a kind of like a like a brick building on the end, which was the chaplain's, the padre's um, room, and and it's one of those places where you know you can kind of half close your eyes and kind of see the sort of sense the ghosts of the past and all the rest of it. It's very haunted, and I remember I remember Paul telling us that that, that they'd found a baseball bat in the hedge, mm. you know, just a little <laughs> a little way away. And oh my like, god! Oh, it's just so incredible. It takes you back in but, time. but but that diary, John, is amazing, it is. isn't you it? Know because what? he 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 charts the, the 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 drop in morale, and there's this moment where. The first crew has done got to 20, 24 missions and it's going off on its twenty fifth, and they either crash on takeoff or coming back. I thought it was on takeoff, but I could be wrong. On takeoff, you yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. So everyone's everyone's g'd up. Everyone's pumped for them. Everyone, because everyone wants them to do it because that Show means that if done. they can do yeah. it. I can, I can do it too, and they they take off. Something goes wrong and they just crash into the trees. Uh, before they, you know, the whole thing blows up and everyone, there's body parts all over the place. And, you know, it's just devastating yes. for everybody. And it's winter. It's like November 1943. And, the, you know, it's freezing cold and muddy and dark and horrid and very much like it is in England at the moment. I have an original copy of that diary. Um, and I'm actually, this is a wow. very long-term project I've been working on because I have so much to do. But I'm actually working on editing that diary um, because it, it, it was in the uh, 8th Air Force Museum archives in Savannah. I found it there and the, the family gave me permission to, to have the original and to, right. to, you know, and I, I really feel badly because this has been going on for years. I just have not had the right. time to get it. But it's, that Chaplain Brown's story is absolutely incredible. And I, so when I was researching Deadly Sky, I went to as many of the airfields as I could. And it was like the same experience you were just talking about, Jim, where it's like you've gone back in time 
to these places, whether it's Kimbolton or Ridgewell or, or I mean, tons of other. I'm just looking behind me to see if I've got it up on the shelf somewhere. Which one? The uh, um, the the Brown book, the Good Brown. It's, yeah, yeah, it was published it's, it's in quite, a, it's a quite a chunky and that was a, a kind of an abridged format. Yeah, it was published um, like by a veterans organization or something like that. This is about 30 years ago. And it's really interesting, but this is the like the original typewritten version. He had several versions that he he had typewritten, and then he had written on more notes. And you know how that goes; it gets a bit jumbled. Uh, but it's really quite fascinating. He's he's an amazing guy. He lived to be a hundred years old, mm. I think, something like that. Did he? Yeah, he had a long mm. post war life. Uh, he was a very respected cleric, of course. Uh, he was a Methodist minister. And his his diary just takes us through so many of the moods of this really quite remarkable unit that right. does a lot of fighting. And, and it's uh, and it's up and down, of course, because you know it has these these terrible m- morale problems, which are kind of sort of absolutely gripping it by the end of 1943. And there's panic at the top because they know they've got to clear the air before you can even think about going across the the, the channel in in May, then subsequently June 1944 for the Normandy invasion. You know that, that's an absolute prerequisite yeah. and and the panic is on because they don't know how to do it and they're, and they're even with america's you know this is touching on what we were talking about when we we're talking about mobilization even when you're kind of um uh with with americans huge resources it's not enough you know you can't keep losing people at this rate and, and societal will will not put up with those kind of losses yet you've gone down this route and this is the same problem this is the, the kind of existential crisis that bomber command has as well in you know as early as 1941 summer of 1941 with the butt report where they kind of realize that they're just not hitting anything and their accuracy levels are really really poor and and you know so much has been put into bombing and strategic air power that it's too late to turn back you can't just suddenly abandon it you've got to keep going so you've got to find a way through and the solutions obviously is the is the p51 mustang it's it's greater numbers it's it's wearing down the germans it's also a change at the top you know i think it's one of those things that that you know ira Aker doesn't really do anything wrong he's a he's a very brilliant airman he's a he's a, a, a very humane guy but it's right to move him on when they do and and do little who's it's a lot like Haywood Hansel yeah right it's it's very like that yeah and and of course you know who who just to remind people of course was it was the guy who was leading the the, the B29s and not very effectively until he's replaced by LeMay whereas Aker is replaced by Doolittle who's not as ruthless yeah. as LeMay but he's and Doolittle of course is this great hero is is this Doolittle is as famous a man in America as any yeah. um you know this this pioneering um Aviator, winner of the Schneider Trophy in 1925, I believe, winner of so many records, an aviation engineer as mm-hmm. well, um, leader of the uh, Doolittle Raid from the, um, yeah. um, is it Hornet? Hornet, USS Hornet. No, which one yeah. was it? In April yeah. 42. Hornet, Hornet in, in April 42 against Tokyo. Medal of Honor recipient. Of course, for that particular yeah. raid leadership. Um, and, and then subsequently commander of the um, Strategic Bomber Force in um, in the Mediterranean in the first part of 1943, second part of 1943 as well, and then takes over in January and he changes everything. And again, it's that combination of suddenly wearing down the Germans, the arrival of the Mustang, fresh blood, a kind of a new dawn, greater numbers. Suddenly it all starts to come together and mm-hmm. things change. But I don't know how they did it. When you're fighting, particularly in that second half of 1943, you're fighting those odds. You're coming back to, you know, you've started the day in a full concert hut. And by nightfall, it could be half empty. And it's likely to be. And 
not only are you grieving for your mates, you're also thinking that yeah, could be for me. It could be me tomorrow or the next day or whenever we fly next. And it's also that problem you have, where whereas the greatest, um, I, I think it's right in saying, and this is the whole point about decompression. This was one of the problems coming out of Vietnam, wasn't it? That one minute you're in the jungle, you're, you're fighting the kind of Viet Cong, and the next minute you're in San Francisco, mm. literally kind of a day later. And the juxtaposition is too great, and you can't cope it with is. it. Uh, and, and that's why they do all this decompressing now. And, and you go to kind of, you know, if you're in the British, you go to Cyprus for a bit after Afghanistan or whatever, mm. or Iraq, you know, and you unwind, and then you come home. The problem with the air crews is that one minute you're flying and you're absolutely crapping yourself and the next minute you're down the local boozer exactly throwing darts and chatting up the skirt and it's kind of jarring kind of one minute that one minute that whereas at least if you're in the infantry you're kind of you're, it's, it's miserable all the time you're immersed in that world and you're not going to be out of it whereas yeah the, the aviation side especially for the eighth air force operating in east anglia so many opportunities to have civilization somewhere nearby, to, to go to a local home and, and have a meal, uh, to make local friends, to, to go and pick up women, to go to pubs, to, you know, and you've got money and you've got resources. You're exotic, you know, to some of the locals yeah. or whatever. You've got gum, you've got chocolate. Yep. You've got some real advantages there. And of course, the, the British guys are thrilled about that. Obviously, you've got great teeth. Know, right? <laughs> right. You've pretty much got it all. Um, and so, yeah, there's a terrible sort of juxtaposition there. I think in some ways it's helpful other ways it's not i think the eighth air force guys are really lucky compared to aviators elsewhere 15th air force you've got a version of that in italy if we're yeah. in the fifth air but force it's te- but it's tense isn't it it is it's tense, it's tense and, it's, and, and it's, it's not as dangerous and it's more desperate you know because of the circumstance on the ground because the ground war is going on in italy or had been through there you know had been through Foggia or wherever you're based you know so uh if we're in the fifth air force in new guinea we don't have amenities. I mean, we're doing all this sucky flying. It's not as dangerous, of course, but still, it's it's tough. And we're going back to a you know a jungle, to a swamp or whatever. So I don't think that other aviators would have joined me in feeling sorry, I guess, for the eighth um, in, in that respect. And also, they they felt that the eighth had too much publicity. You know, they joked that there yeah. was uh, an extra crewman on every plane, the publicity guy, you know, or, or, or you know, mm. whatever, be a photographer, you know. So but at the same time, the eighth Air Force did have it roughest in the sense of the casualties. This was yeah. the most dangerous place to fly. You know, this is where three highly developed techno-rich, industrialized country were pouring maximum effort into deciding this question. Germany, Britain, and the U.S. to decide this air war over, over Northern Europe. You know, that, that's why it's manifesting itself this way, I think. We need to take a break right now. We'll see you in a tick. Your last day of vacation and you found time for a deep tissue massage followed by a long mud bath, then a two-hour nap. Because you're an American Express Platinum Guard member and booked your stay at a fine hotel and resort through Amex Travel, which means a 4 p.m. checkout. And those relaxing vacation vibes can keep going at the airport in the Centurion Lounge. Just a splash. Before you board the plane back to reality. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your travel experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. 
Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. And also, you would it could take you quite a long time to get through your 25 missions, even if you do get to 25 missions. Say you arrive in England in September 1943, you poor sod, um, and and there you are sent off to the 381st at Ridgewell or whatever, which is which is in it's it's kind of it's east of Cambridge, so it's it's not right on the coast, but it's definitely in, in it's sort of between Cambridgeshire and Suffolk. Is it in Essex? I can't remember. I think it's in Essex actually, which is kind of the, the southernmost county in. East Anglia, that bulge on the east of England. And, you know, you might not finish till March. Right. Easily. Or April or something. Because, because you might only be flying once a week or twice a week. And then you might not fly for three weeks because you've got flu. Or then you've got a rest bit in the in the middle of it where you go to these rest camps where you're, you're suddenly taken out and there's these old country estates where they're kind of, there's one up in Liverpool, I think, and I can't remember where the other one is. There's, there's a number of them and you go and hang out for a, for a bit and go to the local pub and have nice meals and wander the grounds and all the rest of it. And it's completely surreal. It is. I mean, you know, but everything about it because it's an old, old house built in 1727. Uh, um, so mm-hmm. that's odd. Um, but you need that break anyway. Yeah. Then you have leave weekends and all sorts of stuff. But the weather's so bad in the winter of 1943, yeah. oh, yeah. 44. So there might be two weeks where you're not flying, where you're, you're just getting it. You're just starting to calm down again. Then suddenly message comes up. Okay. The weather looks good. You're on your ship's on tomorrow. So it's like deep breath. Okay. Um, yep. Psych yourself up again. You're going to be flying tomorrow, so you know that overnight. Um, uneasy sleep. Wake up in the morning. Cycle, or you know, these places are huge. These bases, you know, somewhere like Ridgewell or whatever. You know, you're covering a number of square miles, and where you're billeted might be, you know, you might it, it's a ten minute walk to the Chow Line, or you might have a push bike in which you could get on or whatever. Um, so you go down there, and the NCOs and 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 officers are segregated to a certain extent on accommodation and, and, and eating and things. So you go into your chow line, you have your breakfast, then you go off for briefings. Then you might do a test run of your fort or your liberator or whatever it might be. Then you go, and, and then you might be off at 10, you might be off at 11, it might yeah. be off at two, you know, do, do, do you don't know? You, you, you might be up at three in the morning yeah, because easily. you've got to. It's early because you've got to. You've got to take off at nine because you've got to take off at nine because it's middle of the winter and you've got to be back by four and you've got to be over middle of the day because that's the brightest part of the day. So that means kind of you know twelve o'clock UK time, two o'clock Germany time, or whatever. So 
you know, it's it's tough, and th- and then you're back, and then you're having um, a kind of a tot of rum and and debrief and and a beer, and then it's back to bed, and then you might have four days of not having anything, and so it goes. So, what's the sort of re- culture of comradeship and relationships in? Eighth Air Force, because you know in Bomber Command they crew up, and the, the crews all select one another essentially and crew up that way. What sort of what what goes on in the kind of friendships and relationships? And as Jim said, you know, at the start of forty four, you've got new leadership, new blood. New leadership's one thing, but then getting the men further down the food chain who are putting their lives at risk to respond to that yeah, leadership is another is another is another challenge altogether. Yeah, and that isn't easy, incidentally. That doesn't yeah. work entirely smoothly for D level. So yeah, is it is a similar thing? So most of the crews, it's interesting because in the U.S. they would have done a lot of their initial training separately. They wouldn't have known one another then. So depending on whether you're a pilot, a bombardier, a navigator, a gunner, radio guy. Uh, flight engineer, you know, that all impacted where you were going for training. Typically, you were going to be in um, classified. Everybody was classified in Nashville, Tennessee, uh, and then they're spread out over all these various training areas, generally in the south. But once you're married up with your crew, you're probably um, in the western part of the country, uh, and you're working together on a lot of the formation flying with other planes and crews, of course, but you're forming that kind of primary group cohesiveness, learning to work together, learning different things. And, and the, the, um, the Army Air Force is really, really quite informal in, with regard to, to rank versus the rest of the, the military, because in, in a way, because they were so new and because many of them didn't really think of themselves as military as so much as they thought of themselves as just aviators. And that was different, you know. And so um, by the time you deploy overseas to the 8th Air Force, it's very likely that you know these guys pretty well on your crew. And, and yeah, well, it's like what you were saying with, with bomber command. I don't know that you would have gotten too thick with people on other planes, uh, other crews, but there would have been a number of times. And this was the, the confounding factor for a lot of guys. You're not always flying every mission with your crew. Stuff happens. People get sick uh, or they're, you know, they're wounded or they're, you know, stuff comes up. So, and, and so, people had different attitudes. Some people wanted to get their, their uh, tours of duty done really quickly. Uh, and so let's say I'm a navigator. I'm looking to fill in on anybody's plane on any flight so I can get done quickly and go home. But then again, if I'm a different person, I might be very superstitious about flying with somebody else, especially if I've survived a dozen missions with my crew or whatever. So, so I think you were likely to know people from other crews and make friends and whatnot, but I think there would have been a reluctance on some level. Yeah, John. I mean, I mean, the other the other thing is, is that officers and other ranks were, were were accommodated separately. So your NCOs would be in one concert hut, and your you know, for example, and your and your officers might either be in a house or they might be in a slightly better concert hut. Yeah, just not as many people in the concert hut, or, or just not as many. Yeah. So so what tended to happen is is. Officers would would mingle with other officers. You would mingle with your crew, your, your other crew. And once you're on your ship, you, you, you know the bond has to be completely tight. You all have a lot to of have first names, a lot of first names, a lot of a lot of, of of mutual trust. There has to be. And if there's a weak link, you tended to kind of kick them off for whatever reason, you know, and get rid of them. And and that would happen pretty quickly, even if you're not a particularly strong-minded command, you know, lead captain or whatever. 
you know, there would be officer power where you, they would all get together and go, look, look, this guy's an absolute weakling. We've got to get rid of him for whatever reason. And that, that would tend to be the officers as well. So that, that's your bombardier, your, your, your second pilot, your pilot, um, um, your navigator, your navigator. The, you know, the, yeah. that, that four out of your 10, those are the, that's your kind of central cabal of, of every, every, of every crew. So, so the NCOs kind of stick together. The officers stick together. If you're in a concert hub with other NCOs and other, inevitably you're going to bond because you're in it together and, and you're sleeping together and you're sharing shower blocks together and you're crapping together and well, all this kind of stuff. And you're, you're going to town together. You're, you're picking up women together. Of course, of course. So, yep. so inevitably, and what you tend to find is that. You start off being kind of very cheery, and then you a couple of crews go, and you have a replacement of a couple of rounds in your concert hut or whatever, and then you're a bit wary because I don't want to get too friendly with these guys because they want to be around tomorrow. Um, and so then you become a bit more introverted. And, and and what you typically find is is that there's there's a kind of sort of the two thirds way through the tour point where you're starting to really crap yourself because yeah. you're getting yeah. you're seeing the light at the end of the tunnel but this is the kind of you're in sniper, you know you're in sniper alley you know you, this is this yep. is you know what can happen and and then there's a kind of fatalism which takes over from the last kind of two or three but where you're sort of it's so close that you're not relaxing again that's not the right phrase but you're through the darkest zone I would say. And, and of course, that is sweeping generalization, and it's not the case for absolutely everybody. Everyone's different because they're different personalities. But there, there are certain themes on there. There's certain threads that, that you see time and again in people's memoirs. Well, and that's and- where you see personalities revealed because some people were fatalistic, like, you know, whatever happens, happens. I'm not going to worry about praying or whatever. And then you have other people who had these distinct superstitious rituals things they would wear, ways they would get on the plane, routines they would go through, and that if, if this didn't happen, they wouldn't fly. Right. You and know, they, they brought that out very well, I think, in the Memphis Balance, that brilliant bit where the navigator says, Val, are you scared? And he goes, no, I'm Val. And, and, yeah. and, and that line is taken directly from Serenade to the Big Bird you know the bird styles where he's he's the co-pilot and the pilot and he says to the pilot i can't remember what he's called ed bob pete or whatever he goes are you are you scared he goes no i'm pete you know and no it was the it was navigator and bombardier so val is the bombardier which makes it even more interesting yes 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 but in real life it's oh oh you mean in real life in real life it's it's you know um bert styles is the co-pilot and and the pilot he says it to the to the pilot it is and so val to me is a lot like that guy i mentioned before uh, he's got the veneer, you know, he's yeah. got the, he's got the, the face on and then the navigator DB Sweeney's character. That's right. It's, uh, yeah, 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 he's yeah. just a mental mess. Yes. And so that's one of the things I really like about the film is it shows you the different personalities and Matthew Modine's character who, who's supposed to be, you know, Robert Morgan, the real pilot of the Memphis bell is the leader and always has to be that kind of straight lace guy uptight looking out for everybody. Um, and then you have the, the interplay, the superstitious, the lucky talisman, the lucky rubber band for the waist gunner and all of that. And, and uh, I just, I, I really think they captured the different personalities. Well, you have the, the, the happy go lucky 18 year old ball turret gunner uh, played by Sean Astin. Uh, and I think that's another interesting dynamic in this whole thing. There's a one-off, the ball turret gunner. Yes, and you've got the laid-back dude of Harry Connick Jr. He's a, yeah. he's a tail gunner. The tail gunner, and yet he's figuring odds back there, too. He's phlegmatic. Yeah, he's helping the farmer out to, to fix his, uh, you know, whatever that, that tractor was, whatever. <laughs> but but how, about, how about just the existence of a ball turret gunner? 
I mean, this little absurd, vaulter that I mean, hangs in space with your twin 50s and you're scrunched up. You got to be a little guy. You have to be. But here you talk about, you know, trusting your crew. You're dependent on these guys to get you out of there because you can't wear a parachute in there. You can put a, a safety latch on. But I mean, the Balter Gunner, I know of no other time in aviation history when you had either the existence of it or such a prominent role for a Balter Gunner that you have during World War Two. And it, among the among the positions on the crew, I wouldn't want. I think that'd be the first. Um, can you guys imagine that? Just like hanging in space, yep. looking down like no, that. No, no. Oh, well, there's that bit, and, he, and he's absolutely gasping, isn't he? When it, when they pull him back in, because he has been hanging. Oh it. my it's god, just... yeah. Because he's he's been chasing. I mean, he was the happy-go-lucky guy, you know, constantly looking for women, nothing serious. You know, he's, we all knew guys like that at age eighteen. Maybe we were guys like that at age eighteen. But you know, that experience sure, sure changed him, and I, I think that captured. Another person. I just, I just, we've got so much to talk about on this. I I think we should kind of draw draw breath there, but but it's it's the the awe of which (laughs) I hold these guys for doing what they did. I I just don't know how they did it. I don't know how they did it. You know, if you're an infantryman, you can hit the deck. You know, you can, you can, you can. You're you're not, you're not master of your destiny, but there's there's just a there's a there's a tiny bit where you've got control. If you're a bull turret guy, you've got there's nothing. It's nothing. You're and you're in an unnatural situation. You're a human being, twenty five thousand feet in the air. Yeah. <laughs> As an infantryman, I can take cover somewhere. I'm on terra firma. I can get into a building, maybe, or I can. There's some options available to me if my plane John, who, is going who, down. Who's being selected to be the ball gunner, though? Is they getting good people, or the, or is it the like small people? Small, I'll be all right. Is it just small people? <laughs> yeah. I mean, they're good people. They're sharp. They're volunteers. Right. Everybody's a volunteer, but it's it's somebody diminutive. So if you're five foot eight, you're probably too big to be a ball turret gunner. But of course, remember this is 1940s. Yeah. People tended to be smaller then. So you do have a pool of people, the five five ish, five six ish people, who are going to be, you know, in your crosshairs. It's it's actually really similar. Even Americans were smaller in the Second World War. Even Americans, right? Well, because remember the Depression had happened, and oh, so yeah, yeah. a lot of people weren't eating well, nutrition levels. But it's remarkably similar to another, what I think, undesirable job a generation later, a tunnel rat in Vietnam. Yeah. Um, you know, if you're six foot two, you don't really have to worry about being picked to be a tunnel rat. If you're the small guy standing near the lieutenant guess what? Um, you know, so the ball turret gunner, I think in terms of like during the, the testing and training phase is going to lend in the same kind of direction. But of course, any pilot would tell you the most important gunner was the, the tail gunner. And you've, got four, and you've got four machine guns, haven't you? Yeah. Four machine guns among the gunners there, but you, you also have the top turret guy too, who's your engineer. But I'm not right in saying that is it a twin 50 caliber or is it a, is it a quadruple 50 caliber in the tail? It's, Twin, it's twin 50 in the tail, or it should be most of the time. It's twin 50 in the ball turret. It's single 50 on the on the waist. That's right. Yeah, but yeah. if you're a pilot, you're probably going to put the guy you think of as your best gunner as the tail gunner, somebody most reliable, at least by the accounts of most of them. And that does make sense. Wow. But, you know, that's the other thing. You were talking about the, the, the ranks. You know, they're pretty much all NCOs. And uh, so because the, the reason was if they got shot down. And then down, 19 or 20 or 21. Right. Or if, if they 18. got shot down, then they wouldn't have to work, you know, compulsory work or whatever. But there was a lot of resentment among that in the ground forces. You know, I could be a pretty senior level infantryman and I'm just a three stripe sergeant leading a squad. 
And I don't have as much rank as this fresh-faced 19-year-old ball turret gunner who's a staff sergeant or a uh, radio guy who's a tech sergeant. You know what I mean? That, that is extraordinarily unfair. If uh, you have you guys seen that uh, um, famous Bill Malden cartoon of you know Willie and Joe, of course? But have you seen the one where uh, one of the, I don't remember which one it is, Willie or Joe encounters his nephew um, who's an <laughs> <Yeah>. aviator <laughs> and a lieutenant colonel? Yeah. <laughs> He's like Uncle Willie, or, you know. And Willie's a private, and his nephew yeah. is a is a lieutenant colonel because he's a, a pilot, you know. Yeah, but he looks funny. like he's twenty. Yeah, <laughs> it's so funny. In the RAF, the, the, there's a legend of a thing called LMF, lack of moral fiber, and there's been some interesting recent research into the, looking into it as to, and the idea is that, and and it's gone into the historiography that if you if you can't cope anymore with flying if you're not prepared for it you'll you'll be declared that you, you have a lack of moral fiber and you're kicked out of your unit and you and the story is that you were paraded you'd have your badges cut off with a razor and and be and be sent on your way in disgrace and what's interesting though is it seems that never happened and it's a legend a sort of meme that took hold of people's imaginations within bomber command and that the ref encouraged people to believe in to try and keep people Together, what happens if you if you don't want to fly anymore? What happens if you have combat fatigue? What what happens in the US, US Air Force? You don't have to, and there's no sort of there's no category of lack of moral fiber. They would probably call it a combat fatigue case, or you know, or some you know sickness or something yeah. like that. But you know, so you could be rotated out, but you would have to realize the stigma that's probably going to happen. Yeah. Um, remember, I mean, a lot of these guys are flying because of their crew in a way that that's why they're getting out of bed and doing this. If I'm the one guy in the crew who just like, guys, I can't do this anymore. You know, you're facing some level of stigma from your primary support group. And I do think that that is a real, you know, disincentive. So a lot of these guys will say, if I had real courage, I would have said I wasn't going to fly anymore. They thought it took more courage to, to do that. And, and so some people like in the abstract, like you'd hear about somebody in your base, somebody in your squadron or group or whatever. Oh, yeah, that 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 waste gunner, he just resigned from flying. He resigned his ratings, said he wasn't going to do it anymore. It's a kind of thing that would prompt a sort of murmur of understanding yeah. and maybe quasi approval yeah. in the abstract. Yeah. But if it's the guy in your crew, not that you'd hate the guy, but you would look at him differently, even if you could sympathize, too. Um, and so th- this was a massive disincentive and I, and I think caused a lot of these guys to continue. And of course, remember how young they are too. Yeah, 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 yeah. A lot of them still felt they were indestructible. Yeah. It's interesting that the, the RF sort of cultivated that idea that you were really going to be scorned publicly. I don't think that would have flown in, um, in the army air forces, so to speak. Um, I don't think that that would have been, it would have been thought of as okay at the senior level. But certainly there's a lot of thought invested as to how you're going to keep air crewmen continuing to fly because there's so many morale issues. Um, And they're looking at what happens in the ground forces in which, you know, we're lucky to have maybe a a minimum of 10 to 15 percent of our our manpower lost to combat fatigue at any given. Are there any mutinies? Is there any point when anyone downs tools? Well, there's the Munster raid which is basically a raid to dehouse German workers and is designed to, to bomb civilians. Um, there's a lot of grumbling over that, and there are some people who are threatening that they're not going to fly. Right. But it's for a different reason than I can't survive my tour. It's the moral stuff that, that you mentioned earlier. Really? Al. 
Yeah, that, that concern. That um, is fascinating. And, and later, you're going to have you're going to have a little bit of that in the Pacific War too yeah. on the the fire bombing. You know, the, the morality of that too. Wow. But not any mass mutinies that are anything like that that I'm aware of. I mean, maybe it could have happened, but I I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Gosh, how interesting. Yeah. God. Well, I mean, again, we've barely got going, have we, on this subject? But that's a good thing. That's a good uh, that's thing. That's a good thing because there's it more. Is. There will be more to come later in the year. Um, there uh, will be more definitely. for all sorts of reasons. Anyway. Oh yeah. Um, uh, thanks again, um, uh, John, for, t- for joining us to chat. We hope you enjoy these. We have Ways USA. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you again soon. Bye bye. Cheerio. See ya. <laughs> <laughs>